Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm David Feingold, your host for the Future of Higher Education, and I'm back with John Sexton, President Emeritus of New York University. John, I'd like today to talk about your book, uh, Standing for Reason, Universities in a Dogmatic Age, and try to distill some of the lessons on leadership you have from uh, your tremendous success at NYU. Um, can you describe for, for folks, uh, in the book, you talk about the second axial age and universities being a key uh, actor in making this uh, possible. Can you describe what you mean by that and, and the role you see for universities? Well, the phrase the second axial age is, is not mine. Uh, the axial age is... Uh, Jasper's and later Niebuhr's uh, notion that there was about a thousand year period where there emerged a sense of individuality uh, for humankind, where we took personal responsibility, uh, where where, uh, we no longer thought of the tribe as responsible if an individual in the tribe uh, did something wrong. my uh, mentor for my doctorate, uh, Ewart Cousins, uh, under the influence of uh, the Jesuit theologian, philosopher, paleontologist, Teilhard de Chardin, uh, began to talk about the coming of a second axial age, which was is the period in which we are now, uh, began uh, roughly 70 to 100 years ago where out of this uh, aggressive individuality, there began to emerge a new form of what Teilhard would call planetization, where uh, humankind passed to a, a, a new stage of existence through what he called the critical threshold, uh, to where we saw ourselves as uh, in communities again, but complex communities of communities, uh, the metaphor that I introduced uh, uh, was the metaphor of the elements of a watch, uh, where each individual element could be identified. Think of that as a community, uh, but that they, uh, the elements of the watch inter- interlocked uh, such that they created a whole that was greater than the sum of the parts. And that's the process uh, by analogy to evolution that Teilhard saw uh, emergence of an individual different form of being divergence into many variations on that theme and then convergence, which is the period that's happening now to, to on what he called point Omega. He was talking theologically and that would be for Christians Christ, but with some spiritual converging point. And then at that converging point, passing through a critical threshold to something greater. So, so Teilhard and, Ewart Cousins and others that began to take this up uh, uh, in the last quarter of the 20th century would say that the the very shrinking of the world uh, through communications, transportation, uh, the, the was this convergence point that we were witnessing. And uh, one sees that as counterpointed to... Uh, what seems in some ways in the secular world to be a balkanization and a fragmentation and a tribalism and a, uh, 
and one would be discouraged by that, but for the fact that, uh, and this is what I sketch in the book, I, I, I essentially use the theological ecumenism that I've witnessed over the last 60 years. Uh, I take as a point 1956, compare that to 2016. Back then, uh, I was taught that anyone not of my faith could not be saved, whereas in 2016, I can participate in any number of ecumenical conferences, bringing together religious leaders from dozens of faiths uh, virtually on a weekly basis. Uh, the, the, the politics seems to be moving in the opposite direction, but if one looks at the grand forces uh, that are at stake, which is the sweep of a thinker like uh, Teilhard de Jardin or Hewitt Cousins, uh, one one can be optimistic. But what's needed is bridges of understanding. What what's needed is the the habits of mind of of, of humility, uh, curiosity. Yes, pushing forward uh, the 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 frontiers of knowledge. Yes, but always with humility and understanding. You're building on others and you're building towards others who will revise and improve what, what you do, but we're doing it as a common humanity. Knowledge is not a zero-sum game. That's the essence of the university. Knowledge is a positive-sum game. And and the the university seems in its structure, the, uh, the institution of the university, because of its uh, inherent transparency, because of its inherent skepticism. Uh, because of its inherent belief in thought, the great uh, vehicle of understanding, uh, uh, universities seem to me to be a key to uh, advancing this notion of planetization, which you would call the second axial age. Great. And you you mentioned the sort of optimistic, when you take the the long view um, tone that that the book strikes, I would have said, you know, I shared with you, if I think about my life up till 2016, I took certain things like a general movement toward free trade, a general sense that democracy was spreading around the world. Those were things, while there were certainly aberrations, that there seemed to be an arc that we were heading that way. But, you know, the book was obviously written before the last election cycle, before what we saw with the Capitol, and, and just not just in the U.S., but what we're seeing around the world, as you say, the balkanization over the last few years. Do you still have that optimism when, when, when you look at, at these trends? Well, the book actually was written uh, after the last election. Uh, the, the thoughts uh, that, that are... are the dominant theme of the book uh, had existed, uh, obviously going back in in my own intellectual history and well beyond that in the world's. Uh, but uh, I, I made a conscious decision not to focus on uh, Donald Trump and the phenomena that he brought to the fore, uh, because it, actually in the book I, I I trace even as I'm giving the optimistic picture to which you just alluded, a very pessimistic picture in terms of the political evolution in the opposite direction. So 1956 to 2016, as I presented in the book, the arc of theological ecumenism is going toward the positive, whereas the political arc is 
going toward the negative. Long before Donald Donald Trump, I decided not to use the noun Trump in the book because it would be conceding to his capacity to distract us from the bigger issues. And and I do say that uh, there are deep challenges if one looks immediately at short-term trends, even as I'm writing the book, because uh, Trumpism, you might want to call it, if you want to grace him with an ism, uh, uh, tr- Trump, Trumpism was was spreading through Europe at the time. Uh, and and, and I, I decided that uh, one had to take a slightly longer look because if one didn't, it would never happen that there would be progress. And, and of course, the university is twinned with me in that. <laughs> the university cannot adopt the, the kind of uh, uh, anti-intellectualism that so characterized uh, the, the Trump and that negative uh, evidence that's on the table. Yep. Um, when we were talking about the, the different stages of the global network university, and you had mentioned it had started very much with your understanding of New York and it being a truly global city. I was wondering if you could say a little more about how you view the relationship between universities and the cities that surround them. And in particular, thinking about what we talked about last time. So there's this deep, uh, obviously you can't separate NYU from New York, but as you think about Shanghai and Abu Dhabi, in terms of the the way in which they have operated with their surrounding cities, whether you have that same kind of relationship that you've seen and and, and how that plays out for, for the different campuses. Of course, it's important to keep in mind the, the, the metaphor of the symphony orchestra when one thinks about higher education. Uh, and even within... Uh, call it the violin section, or, or, or if your favorite section is the brass section, uh, the, the research university sector of the orchestra where I've lived since 1981 at, at NYU, uh, even in that, there's the, uh, the, there's, there's the university that's in the city, the way NYU is or Columbia is, uh, but there are also the land-grant universities and yep. uh, uh, great universities aren't necessarily in the city. They, they may have a town and gown issue, but it's not the issue of, of the city, yep. let alone what NYU is in each of the three locations that you've mentioned, which is a city by the sea, which is a subspecies even of right. the university that's in the city. And I would say an interesting thing that's happened with all of the uh, NYU campuses, all the main campuses, is is that uh, there's been a deep integration into the city. Now that that's more advanced in New York than it is in either Abu Dhabi or Shanghai, for a couple of reasons. First, first of all. We, we've had almost 200 years in New York and, and, and we've grown up in a kind of salt and pepper relationship with the, with the meal that is New York. You can find us in every taste of the meal. Uh, virtually any neighborhood of, uh, of, of New York has an NYU presence in it. Uh, but uh, there's a second factor, 
which is really important in terms of talking about NYU as what I call, using the word in a secular sense, uh, an ecumenical university. When you talk about Abu Dhabi and in Sh- and Shanghai, of course, NYU, to the extent you view it as an American university, is not there uh, setting the context and terms and uh, it, we're only beginning to flex the muscles of what it means to be integrated into those cities. It's it's a, a deeply intentional effort. And, uh, of course, we're blessed uh, in Abu Dhabi now with 10% of the student body being Emirati. In Shanghai, 50% are native Chinese, uh, which, of course, doesn't mean Shanghaiese. Nope. In fact, we make an effort that they're not all Shanghaiese. Uh, you could accept a, an entire class of extraordinary students just from that one city. So so one when we, has to really be conscious as you move into these other contexts to approach them ecumenically. Uh, an instinct of Americans, to the extent they think about it at all, sometimes they just approach with, pridefulness and hubris, but uh, an instinct to the extent they think about it all is to approach with the truth, uh, here a secular truth, with a capital T, almost as secular missionaries. Uh, and, uh, uh, you, you know, the, the, something to which you alluded, which was uh, the, the Bush democracy agenda, was, was an example of that, assuming that uh, democracy as we've developed it is uh, the not just as Churchill said the best of the alternatives, but right. the best in some objective sense, the best and uh, uh, not something upon which we should be keep working. So the, the the instinct to approach as a missionary has to be resisted. It has to be the same dialogic dialogue that the, one approaches in a great love affair, where, where you try fully to understand your thou. But, but at the same time, consciously attempt always to be aware of how your thou is experiencing you and then becoming a better person by seeing yourself in that dialogic way. When you look back on, on your tenure as NYU's president, what, what are the things that you're most proud of in, in your accomplishments? Well, I, I think I'm proud of the fact that uh, I was useful in a process uh, of uh, putting on offer to the university a view of itself uh, that was worthy and uh, for which it had unique, I would say, unique assets and capacities. Uh, NYU, uh, it has to be remembered uh, right into the 80s, was on the verge of uh, failure, it, 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 uh, bankruptcy. Uh, it, and New York City itself, when I came to NYU in 1981, was just coming out of being very close to bankruptcy. Uh, so uh, and NYU really needed a view of itself, but it couldn't be a view that was based as the traditional, if you, if you look at the very top tier of universities, and now I'm talking about this subspecies, especially called the research university or the, the, 
the top tier of the liberal arts colleges and so forth, they, they tend to have huge monetary endowments on a per capita basis. NYU's per capita endowment in 2001, when I became president, was uh, about $15,000 a student. That, that was substantially less than St. Francis College in Brooklyn, where I had been chairman of the religious department, and was in the bottom third of private universities in the United States on a per capita basis. Um, so whatever NYU did to try to uh, advance excellence couldn't be directly linked to money. And I think what I helped NYU do is see that it had a locational endowment by being in the ecumenical city of New York, that it had an attitudinal endowment, uh, which I used to describe as the, 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 the attitude that comes from being in an immigrant city. Uh, 40% of the citizens of New York City were born outside the United States. And, and every immigrant is united by uh, wanting a better tomorrow. So NYU had that kind of immigrant attitude of uh, uh, affirmative discontent. It was never going to be satisfied, right? And then uh, what uh, we put on offer as it came into our consciousness as a metaphor to New York City in the Global Network University provided what I call the structural endowment. So, so NYU is uh, still almost unique in that it provides, you know, not a hub and spoke set of uh, uh presences in other places that are satellites and French foreign legion kind of places. But, but it, 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 by creating the global network university anchored by the three campuses and then with the study of wayside supplementing that there's a real circulatory system, which of course is the quality control as well. The circulatory system is the quality control because the blood goes through the system and, and uh, uh, there's, there's mobilities. And if, if you don't maintain quality in every part, there's going to be some kind of glitch. So, so uh, that's structural endowment. And, and then it turned out, and this goes back to uh, uh, the fundraising we began to do all the way back at the law school, where most people viewed themselves as being in a kind of bargain and sale relationship with NYU. You know, it was a commuter school and uh, uh, they, they paid for their education and they got a good education in return. But what really built the roads that allowed NYU first, in my experience, my narrow experience at the law school and then later at the university, what really built those roads were people who had nothing going for them but that degree, that ticket and talent and grit. You know, they were that they had made it, you know, and, and we saw what they could do. But in any case, those uh, once once those roads having been built, we began to think of this new way of conceptualizing uh, ourselves, and, and a story began to emerge. This story that you probed about uh, uh, the the role of the first secular ecumenical university and the first secular ecumenical city, and how that could look and feel. And I think what I did that I'm proud of is I became the storyteller of that. You know, the the mythos in the best sense of the word mythos, the Greek sense of the, of the experienced truth. And it, it was 
uh, embraced uh, and embraced widely. It, 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 it's what I call uh, evocative leadership, which is another way of telling a story that people want to hear. And, and I think you've, you've touched on it somewhat in this, but you had shared earlier when, you know, the board chair first approached you about taking on this role, you made a, a, a passionate case for why you weren't a fit given your leadership style at the law school. And yet, obviously, you were able to evolve and succeed in this. Clearly, you have great story, great storytelling skills. Are, are, are there other attributes as you've thought about the way you approach the leadership of this that, that, that made you successful in the role? Well, I never, uh, I, I, I I, th- I think in order to be a good storyteller, you have to notice well and listen well and, and notice and, and, and see the, the, the essence. You have to take, uh, I, I couldn't, uh, for example, uh, be the president of, of a place just to be the president of a place. Uh, I, I I, I, I wouldn't see that. I, in fact, as, as I said to you earlier, uh, I had that trouble with being the president of NYU. I didn't see a story that would create a useful life for me, yet let alone a useful life for the university. Um, but but once I began to see it, I, I never thought I had the final version. It's almost a metaphor for what the university itself does. I I, I would put it on offer. I would see how people responded. I would. I would re- re-articulate it. And as long as I was within a channel where it was something that called on me to, to, to devote my professional life to it, uh, I could be convinced that it was worthy of others if they chose to join. And they, and, and, and they did. So I think there's, there's that, the notion of being a good noticer and a good listener. I, I also think uh, that, and here you get into idiosyncrasies. Okay, I when I used to uh, invite people to join the university leadership team, uh, if I would always say to them, there are four eccentricities that you have to encounter. Uh, if if you if you're going to think about coming here, and I don't want you to invest your talent here, you're too talented for me to bring you in if you are not a good match for this. So consider these eccentricities. First of all. I am a very eccentric person. I'm, I'm not a real university president. I, I, I don't talk like one. I don't dress like one. I don't think like one. I, I, I don't have the same levers. I'm, I, I, I don't like some of the wonderful perquisites that come from, from, from being a university president that make it very attractive for other virtuous people. Just not to me. Like, like I, 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 I'm not, Eager to be among the the, the the glitterati and the social elite and so forth, I'd much rather, frankly, be be with my family or uh, longtime friends. Uh, so, so it was that in the twenty eight years I was dean and president, those full twenty eight years, uh, uh, that never once did I. And when Lisa was alive, I and Lisa entertain in our home. Uh, for, for the law school or the university or go to anyone's home uh, uh, apply. we would not accept invitations it was a universal rule so, uh, but in any case uh, 
the the first eccentricity was me, and then the second eccentricity was NYU because the, the I remember talking to uh, Andy Hamilton. He was still the head of Oxford, uh, uh, and he had been made the offer to succeed me in 2016 and he had office from two other universities at the same time and we we knew each other because our son and daughter by a coincidence were college classmates and friends and andy called me and said well what do you think and i said <laughs> uh, i said well however complex nyu looks from where you're sitting cuban and then you still will have underestimated its complexity. If humankind has thought of an activity and it's not veterinary medicine, it's the only one I've been able to find, veterinary medicine. But if humankind has thought of an activity, NYU has at least one degree granting program. It may have two and, and may even have three. And if it has two or three, the question is, do they know of each other's existence? The complexity of this place is beyond... Uh, eccentric, and it, it, it's it, it's got a governance structure which has, during my time, uh, uh, moved from being around where the Articles of Confederation were in American government history to somewhere before between the two Roosevelts, <laughs> you know? and, uh, and and so NYU is eccentric. And then what we're going to be trying to do is eccentric, the beginnings of the idea of the Global Network University. And finally, the way we're going to do it is eccentric. So, so, so we're going to run the university administration a little bit like a kibbutz. It was a team uh, that operated in concentric circles. Uh, and. and it was seen as having the the essential decision making structure in 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 a group that was called the university leadership team, which consisted of the deans and uh, the senior administrators, about forty people, and and we would meet three times a year for three days at a time to discuss strategy, and then every week uh, for a couple of hours each week, and if big decisions were to be made, they were discussed in that group and debated in that group and usually made by consensus. If for some reason that group didn't work to form a consensus, and in the 14 years I was president, I can only think of uh, uh, one, two, three, maximum four times uh, that it didn't form a consensus there. There was super majorities, but not a unanimity or consensus. Then it would default to what we call the core, which consisted of, uh, in addition to me, the provost, the dean of the faculty of arts and sciences, the executive vice president for health, the general counsel, and my chief of staff. And and, uh, that group then would do it. And if they didn't form it, then it fell to me. And, uh, you, you know, all of this was done, I would say, as part of a very eccentric way of doing things. Now, I I think that what I contributed to that is that I made it fun to be part of that process. And I, uh, I would say to a person who was thinking of becoming a dean at NYU, uh, you're going to have more power than any other dean of such and such school 
in the country because you're going to have this role in every other school in the university, but you're also going to have everybody else looking at your business. So there's a reciprocity there. Uh, but it, I think I was able to, to, that was where the parish priest came out. And I, I think uh, we, we, we made it fun. And then I was, um, I think, inexorable in insisting that we continue to move that uh, arc in the right direction. And that NYU be a, an integral part of moving the arc of which we spoke in, in the right direction, as seen in the arc of excellence of NYU. And I, and I think everything was normed back to that. And we always tried to think of things. I'm sorry to take so long on this, but I'm, I'm trying to unpack it. Oh, it's great. Extemporaneously here. Uh, I, I, some of the folks said to me that one of the things that was unusual, of course, I don't know them. I don't experience this as unusual. I'm not a student of other universities and we just did what we did. You know, we did what came naturally as the song said, but, but, um, uh, one person who, who, you know, been a provost at another great university and became part of the team said to me that one thing we did that was unusual was we always thought two presidents ahead. We always judged everything by how it would look through, not my successor, but my successor's successor. And, and we were willing to take short-term uh, pain or compromise for a Pareto gain. Uh, and, and one metaphor for that, uh, uh, in the last uh, three or four years, not in the last two, the last two things had kind of returned to equanimity. But in years 11 and 12, there was a lot of Strumendrock in the New York campus. And interestingly enough, we had done all kinds of things that I considered to be really, you know, uh, pressing the limits and indeed pressing the limits in, in domains faculty should care about. I mean, uh, uh, now, now we weren't ordering faculty to do anything. We were putting things on offer and hundreds of faculty were responding and responding positively. The global network being an obvious example, bringing engineering, another example, what we did at the medical school, another example. I mean, there you could go down a whole set of core academic things, not a ripple. When we decided to use the political uh, 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 influence that we had uh, because of my role in New York City and Wayu's role in New York City and the fact that Mike Bloomberg, who cared deeply about higher education, was in New York City as mayor, to uh, get the capacity to build in the Greenwich Village area uh, two million square feet of additional building in a place appropriate for it. Uh, that place, unfortunately, being adjacent to where the faculty apartments were. We have a lot of faculty housing at NYU. Yep. And, and this was on land we owned, uh, not in the heart of Jane Jacobs Village, but down on Houston Street. And uh, we were able to get it through with the unanimous support of the newspapers in New York, across the spectrum, everyone, the, uh, the borough president, uh, the city council, there was only one negative vote, the mayor, and so on. Uh, but there were faculty that raised an objection to that. And, and it, it, uh, 
in particular, the first of the buildings was an 800,000 square foot building on the site of an old gym we had. And everybody in the university conceded we needed space. And we weren't growing the student body. We were just giving more space. Every department, in fact, one department, one of our better departments, in the same mail, I got two different letters from them. The first was a report from the department on their need for additional space. And the second was a protest of the building project <laughs> because they wanted it someplace else other than where the <laughs> fact my backyard. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't want to say those words, but it was, it was, it was really strange. This department, and I, and I love these folks and we were friends with these folks, but, but they're in the same mailing. It came in just by coincidence, the two letters from the department, maybe somebody put them in the box the same day or whatever. But, but, uh, so that was an interesting metaphor because we went through, we, I had said to the trustees, I am, I told them in 2009, my, I'm going on to the next stage of my life, January 1st, 2016. So we're going to start a transition process. And we started one with a, a rotation of deans and, and, and then uh, the, the chair of the board and I, and then the provost. Uh, and so there was a very easy transition to Andy Hamilton, who, by the way, has virtually the same people around him. Uh, the only person that is that he brought in, uh, he's brought in new deans over the years, but the in, in the first three or four years was the provost, who was a woman that had been uh, spotted as a great talent inside by us and had been groomed uh, as one of the potential provosts. So a very easy transition. And all, and all of this. But uh, because these faculty brought lawsuits, which they lost every vote at every level, right up to a unanimous highest court in New York, but they litigated it all the way. And b- because of that, uh, we didn't even break bra- ground during my time as president. But that gift of 2 million square feet to future presidents and you'll only build the first building, 800,000 square feet, which will be a great thing for the university. Uh, but I didn't go to the groundbreaking when it occurred, and I, 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 I didn't go to the topping off ceremony. I'm, I, I, I think they'll, I probably won't go to the dedication. because uh, Not because I'm protesting or anything. It's just, you know, it's not my thing. And, and, uh, and you know, I'm very proud that we made it possible and that NYU now has in perpetuity that irreversible building right if they need more space down the line of an, an additional 1.2 million square feet of building. So I, I wanted to, I would love to come back to the transition, but I wanted to just touch on some of the things that I think are eccentric or quite different in your leadership from, from others that I've spoken to and, and, and studied in higher ed. So, so first, um, I can't think of any president I know who would lead such a complex organization as you described NYU and manage to teach a full load, much less a full load that spans several continents. How, how did you sustain that throughout your tenure? I admire you so much, David. Yet I will, as with Dreyfus, jacuzzi. Yeah, I, I will condemn you for using the word load twice there. 
using it even once is a mortal sin as far as I'm concerned. And that's the key to it, really. Okay. I, I was put on earth to be a teacher. And I, I uh, uh, everything else that I did during the time I was called to be the dean or the president of NYU was in the service of advancing the teaching and research agenda that a university uniquely provides. And it, it, I, I, I actually, it's, it, it, it's, some people don't understand this. My, my, my family does. I draw energy. I mean, it's exhausting to teach well, but I draw energy from it. And, and most importantly, it keeps me focused it, it, and it keeps me in the mind of a faculty member. I've never thought of myself as a CEO. <laughs> I've thought of myself as, as the, 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 the faculties, as best I could, representative. And, and not to do, not that I've been elected or chosen to do, now I'm in power, I can do what I want. No, no, My the task was to, to find something that that both called me and would call the community and put those things on offer. So, and, and the teaching was, and the writing, because I continued to write as well. I mean, my textbook continued. I wrote two books while, while being president. Uh, 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 and, and, uh, uh, I, I, all of the, uh, quote, appearances, close quote, that I did, you know, except for alumni events and things of that sort, were, uh, in, in, in the service of defining the direction for higher education generally. I mean, I mean, it was all part of a piece. I, I didn't do any compensated boards. I did, uh, I did boards that allowed me to have different prisms into looking at higher education, the entire orchestra, not just NYU. So whether it was chairing the New York Academy of Sciences or chairing the American Council on Education or chairing the independent colleges and universities of New York, I mean, all of those things I did uh, for several years. Uh, and, and, and I learned a great deal, again, by noticing and seeing the creativity of others and what would be appropriate inside. So, so the teaching and, and the, 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 call it research, because that's what those board positions really were, uh, uh, and, and and the writing, all decided that they were the the sextant. You know, they were the way the, the, they gave me my north star uh, that that I could, uh, uh, which animated the rest of my thinking. To which my thinking was, to the extent that my thinking was useful. A second thing you mentioned, you know. NYU is not a was not a wealthy university, particularly when when you took over, and you couldn't draw on the endowment to finance the 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 global network university. But you were very successful in raising the funds needed to do these things, and yet you said you you never entertained in your home and you wouldn't accept invites to others. So how did you go about doing that? Well, for, first of all, it's. Uh... It's really important to pluralize the you here, because, uh, 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 and it's also important to introduce two proper nouns: Deborah Lamort. Uh, <laughs> so, so uh, Deborah was the CEO of a, a, a small public company and a lawyer uh, 
when I discovered her uh, in 1990, she had never done any fundraising. But but uh, what I wanted uh, in my director of development at the law school was a person who was smart and who cared, had the same values that, that I did, which at that point I would have said was creating uh, a different kind of law school with uh, which would produce uh, Tocquevillian, uh, Jeffersonian, humanist lawyers uh, and arm them with the instrument of law uh, and, and who was fun to be with and, and uh, organized and, and uh, uh, loyal to the enterprise. And that was that's a description of Deborah. And she had she and I hypothesized that fundraising was not uh, uh, advanced science. It was human relations and, and, and this kind of evocative leadership we're talking about. And uh, by three or four years in, I mean, we would start uh, and, and we, we would have what we called an agenda and we would meet for two or three or four hours a week and go over what ended up being a 30 or 40 page agenda, but it was really a blueprint. Uh, it was not a massing drawing. It was a blueprint. It was down to every city we were going to visit, who we were going to have to do the cities, when we were going to do it, how we would synchronize that with reunions and so forth and so on. Uh, and, and, and uh, but after three or four years, uh, uh, she was so good that I just, became a cork bobbing on the sea of her instructions and, and we would meet and, and, uh, and, and then she moved over to the university uh, when I, when I moved over there and she really led the development team and the deans then began to gravitate towards her because we began to implement the same methods at the university generally. And, and the core of the, 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 the method, I would say, is, uh, you know, some of it is simply uh, believing yourself that this is an important enterprise and worth your professional life. So, so it's, it's starting with that, because if, if, if it's not if, if you're not completely dedicated to the purpose of this, if you don't see the purpose and it doesn't resonate with you, then you're just in a job and people pick up on that. And, and anybody that you're talking to who can give you uh, resources to help the cause uh, is not uh, in a cave someplace where you're the only person that's found them. I mean, this, especially in New York City, sure. this person would be having a dozen meetings a week with the heads of various nonprofits, all of whom would be making uh, the case for their nonprofit. <laughs> so that... Uh, meant that you had to have a differentiating principle. Uh, uh, I, uh, I say to my students when they're going for uh, interviews, go listen to the song from the musical Gypsy, You Gotta Have a Gimmick, where Mama Rose says to Gypsy Rose Lee, Gypsy, if you're just going to strip tease and show yourself you're not going to succeed. We all look essentially the same, especially from a distance on a stage. So that's not going to do it. You got to have a gimmick. So when you striptease, play the trumpet. And people will remember the stripteaser who played the trumpet while she striptease. And, and, and so what we developed was what uh, came to be called in conferences about this, because people would analyze the fundraiser, the idea generated gift. 
as opposed to the loyalty generated gift. You, you build loyalty over time, but NYU didn't have that luxury in 1990 or even in 2000. Now more and more it does. And there is a certain few, what, what I'll call uh, ratifying gifts where people say, ah, well, I, I am going to this great university. I, I just got an email just before we came on here from a law professor at the University of Houston uh, who graduated in the class of 1964. Uh, we haven't seen each other in 20 years. But he just wrote me, he said, I just want you to know I'm still a law professor. I still, you, still see you at President University. I just want to thank you. I had nothing to do with my law school degree getting more and more and more valuable. But but it did. And now I'm considered a big cheese in legal education because I graduated in 1964 from NYU Law School. And, and, and it was just a thank you. That's all it said. He wasn't even asking. Usually a person will say that, but then they'll have some ask, like yeah, I, my daughter would like to go to the Tisch School of the Arts or something like that. None of that. None of that. You know. Uh, and I, I, of course, I wrote him back and I told him what I, I said to you before, that we were able to build the law school because you paved the roads on which we drove the vehicles of excellence. Uh, uh, but uh, it was it was not a place that had loyalty yet. But if you come up with ideas and you continually listen and improve them and you've got the, the community, the faculty, the staff, the students behind it, uh, it turns out that people, if it's worthy, the market speaks in a way. Can I ask you about a, a third thing? You, you had mentioned in our discussion about the law school, and I think you brought the same to elevating the, the excellence of NYU as a whole, was this philosophy of bringing in true stars, you know, assembling a team that other law schools had never done in terms of bringing them away. That That isn't particularly typical in academia, right? And it can create, I would imagine, some tension from those who are already there who it can't be cheap to bring star faculty to one of the most expensive cities in the world, right? And make that attractive. So that approach to things, how did you handle that, sell that internally in terms of, uh, you know, a strategy for elevating the whole institution? Well, well, you're right that it's tricky. Uh, your description of what we did, understandably, uh, uh, Misses a key point. So, so uh, we 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 wanted real stars. Now, some of them were established stars on other faculties, and and I think what you're referring to is there was a an unprecedented migration of uh, the very top. Uh, strike that the, of many or a significant number is even a better way of putting it of the very best law professors in the country to NYU uh, uh, that began during my time as dean, but has continued in the 20 years since. Uh, because once you get the the, the flow going, uh, it, it sustains itself in a kind of virtuous circle. Uh, so yes, that happened. Uh, but we also wanted the stars, so to speak. And let's just use that not, not for uh, celebrity status, but the, as, as normative excellence on whatever criteria you're using. And we tried to use broad criteria and so on. So uh, we wanted the stars of the entry level market as well. So the, the top uh, 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 young talent that was coming in, right? 
And uh, with all of that, we, we used a barometer. We tried to use a metric of saying, okay, these are the eight law schools we, we're, we're, we see as excellent. We, we, we want to have their attributes of excellence as well as what we bring to the table. So, so uh, let's see if the, the, the top young person, so this, this Trevor Lawrence, for example, coming out of the, the, the football college ranks into the pros, everybody says it's going to be the first pick. Okay, so let's see if, if Trevor Lawrence gets offers from the eight of them. If we can give Trevor Lawrence an offer, because this isn't a draft here, and he chooses to come to us. How many that they will give offers who come to us of the youngest people? They're not yet stars, okay, but they're stars in the sense of this normative uh, excellence. Or how many of their established best people choose to come? But we didn't do it on a free agency model. That's where your question had a bit of a flaw in it. We made a conscious decision that we would never succeed if 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 we did it on a free agency model where we set the market, so to speak. So what, what we said was we're going to create an enterprise here that offers them something different, not, not in terms of their compensation. And we never once set a market in bringing anybody to, to the, to the, to the law school. Um, we did over time, develop a, uh, a, a two-track salary system openly in, in which one track was for people who in the judgment of the dean ratified by reference to an external committee of three people could have an offer from one of those eight schools if he or she wanted it. And that was track A, and then track B was one that was not uh, uh, mobile in that sense. Uh, Russell Harden, the political scientist, actually had names for these. They, they were the cosmopolitans and the locals. And we had a cosmopolitan track and a local track, a judgment annually made by the dean, and but reviewed by an external committee, and, and there was about a 20% difference in compensation. But even the cosmopolitan salary never set the market, okay? It was as good as the market, but never better than the market. Because if we were attracting you, suppose we decide David's a great faculty member, we're going to pay him 50% above market to get him to come. Well, we're sitting there with our endowment. We're going to be outbid every time if we make money to coin it around. So what 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 we what we made was the enterprise that we were building, and the and, and the fact that it was a common enterprise in a world where those eight schools were operating primarily on an independent contractor model. So we offered something different, quite intentionally, and then we did neutralize certain things. So we created a faculty housing assistance program. That meant if you moved from Michigan or Virginia or, or even Connecticut to New York, we, would, we wouldn't give you uh, uh, money, but we would co-invest with you in your housing. We would just use, you, you, want, you want a little bit more than you can afford? Okay, you afford what you can afford, and we'll co-invest using the law school's endowment to make up the difference. But we own that portion of the house. 
And, and, and but by the way, you can stay in it as long as you're on the faculty. But if you go to some other faculty, that house is going to be sold and we're going to recapture, you know, our, and it turned out those were some of the best endowments for Law School. Yeah, you, you benefited <laughs> from New York real estate. You know, so, so we came up with ideas that were kind of revenue neutral like that, that neutralized the, the economic effect of change. But we never created a free agency market. And the, the tremendous thing to observe is that those faculty, when they come to NYU, have stayed for decades. And, and, and not because they haven't uh, had, had offers. It's, it's been a student's time now at NYU Law School. And uh, uh, Justice Kagan was on a panel which featured some NYU law professors. And she said in this public forum, when I was dean, I tried to get these guys to come to Harvard for the entire period of my deanship. I couldn't get any of them to come. I got to come to be on the panel with them. <laughs> it was very nice. It was a testament to that. But it was not purchasing talent at all in that sense. It was not a star system the way John Silva, for example, back in the 70s attempted when he brought Ellie Wiesel and Martin Luther King that were a few adornments. And, and the faculty, therefore, always could understand that those people were coming because of the faculty that were already there, even the locals, because of the enterprise we had all built together. And it was not that there were ins and outs or, or, or a caste system at all. We were one common enterprise, and, and, and uh, uh, it was a complement to the existing faculty every time one of those people came. That's great. John, you, you spoke very eloquently at several points about the, you know, how close you were to, to Lisa and how much she meant in your life. How were you able to continue in your role when, when you lost her so suddenly? How, how, in terms of your own ability just to, 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 to handle the, the demands of the position when going through? So if you'll indulge me, I can't resist telling, I think for the first time ever uh, publicly, uh, a story. So uh, Lisa uh, was extraordinary in every way possible. And that was the testament of everyone who met her, not just me. It's not just loving eyes. And uh, she was very active uh in the Jewish community, although always anonymously. By and large, her life was an ecumenical life, trying to bring together. For example, one of the things that she fostered was the uh, Sesame Street for Israeli and Palestinian children jointly. I mean, just to give you one little taste. Um, so as NYU Abu Dhabi began to move from being a completely inchoate idea to something of a possibility. Uh, it became the one thing I did at NYU about which she became very enthusiastic. Uh, she thought this was a very, very good idea. And uh, she said to me, but honey, you, 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 you may find that you're going to get significant blowback from the Jewish community. And NYU has a large Jewish constituency. So she said, I want you to go to see uh, the, the uh, ambassador from Israel to the United Nations, a man named Dan Gilliman. So I made an appointment to see Dan, and I went to see him once, and he immediately said to me, 
this is a great idea, and NYU is the one university can do it. Uh, this may advance the cause of peace, and I will stand with you anywhere. And then about uh, everything was still going on behind the scenes, and I continued. About two or three months later, I went back to see Dan again, and uh, he again said, go for it. Now it was beginning to become a little bit more public. Um, Then came 2007. Lisa died in January. And I went to see Dan in March. And it was, again, like the other conversations. And then I went to see him again in June. And he said to me, John, I'm mortified. By this time, we knew each other. Well, he said, I'm mortified. He said, I didn't realize that you were Lisa Goldberg's husband. And the last time you were here, I should have expressed my condolences. He said, how are you doing? And I began to tell him how I was doing. And he looked at me, he said, you're not processing this like a Jew. And I said, well, ambassador, there's a reason for that. I said, I'm I'm, I'm Catholic, I'm not Jewish. And he looked at me and he said, I can't tell you how many people, how many, how many, People have given me lists of the 10 people I must get to know in New York. You're always on the list. Everybody thinks you're Jewish. <laughs> so, so, and I guess it's the Brooklyn accent and the beard, and I know Yiddish, and uh, not a lot, but I know more than most Jews, and I use it more than anybody. Uh, in any case, uh, in the immediate days after Lisa's death, of course, it, was, it happened in an instant uh, I, I remember Marty Lipton came to see me and I said, Marty, I, I, I don't know if uh, I can go on. First, I don't know if I'll live another six months. I can't imagine living without her. I'm going to try, but uh, I, I, I'm not sure I can continue. But then this uh, amazing university team that I talked about, you know, uh, began to kind of surround me with love and support. And of course, I had my family. We're, we're a wonderful family. I mean, Lisa had created this terrific family for us. And uh, so I had the familial love, but but then the the, the, the love of NYU around us. And, uh, and then I began a process of understanding that not only for our kids and our grandkids, but, but, uh, really for us as, as an I thou couple that I, I could live the life in this world for both of us. There, there's a great metaphor in C.S. Lewis's book, A Grief Observed, which became very meaningful to me at the moment. He said, if you're in a, an I thou love affair, it's, it's like doing a very, very complex advanced dance as a couple. And then at a certain point, the challenge comes that he's wrestling with the issue of God, that God says to you, okay, I'm taking the prop away. Now continue to dance with that person without the physical body of that person being present. And I have to say, David, that uh, that inspired me. And this is not maudlin at all, but, but, uh, uh, it, it, it's not in any more than way, but in a way that elevates me and makes me a better person. 
she continues to be present in my life. And I try to live every day to be worthy of representing her in the world, knowing full well that the world would be better with her rather than me. But it's not the way the dance unfolded. So I, I, I try every day to keep in mind what she would think of what I was doing. And it's made me, I realized at her memorial, not, not the very big public one, but the family one a few days afterwards, after it was really just like a Quaker ceremony. And toward the end of it, my best male friend got up and he said, you know, I, I want to talk to Lisa's family and her friends that are here. It was only friends of 40 years or more. And, and he said, you people didn't know John before he and Lisa married. I'm here to tell you that before that, John was, and I'm going to quote him, an unimaginably immature asshole. <laughs> and, and of course, no one, not my sister, not my children, no one stood up to say, Mike, you're wrong. And, 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 and I didn't think he was that wrong either. I mean, I wasn't that bad. But, but the, what I realized at that point is if you took me in 1976 and drew a straight line of what I would have been till. 2007, okay, and, and, and took that person I would have been if I had just been myself, and you compare that to the person I was in 2007, the person I was in 2007 was more her than me, more her than the person I was in 1976. And, and uh, that's kind of the way I've lived life since, and, and uh, it's actually impelled me uh, to be more dedicated to things that uh, th- that I knew she would consider worthy, which starts, of course, with our family, the kids and grandkids, and and uh, uh, but it it also meant what I did with the talent. You know, I say to my students, none of us had anything to do with being born smart. It just happened to us. Theologically, it's like grace and salvation. Right. But this is a secular grace, right? This is, you just, it happens to you. And, and then the question becomes, what do you do with it? Do you, are you worthy of that gift, that, that investment of the chain of evolution in you? Do you live a useful life that's justified? And, and Lisa supercharged whatever worthiness my life had had up until the time we got married. And she continues to supercharge. John, can I come back to what you mentioned with the transition? I've, I've never heard of any university president saying in 2009 that I'm planning to transition out seven years later. As you probably know, that's longer than the average tenure of a president <laughs> these days. What, what was in your mind with that thing? And, and what did that process look like to plan it over such a long period? Well, the, the process has an antecedent in that I had the, uh, the, there cannot be a partnership between a chair and uh, the leader of an institution, be it the law school or the university, because I had the same chair in both places. There, there cannot be a partnership any closer or more loving than mine with Martin Lipton. Uh, that, that was a great blessing. And uh, Marty, uh, as I told you, wanted me to move from being dean to being president four years before I agreed to do it. He was still chair of the law school board at that time. And 
no, no matter what I said, that I, w- I was never going to leave NYU, that I was at NYU for life, he and the trustees of the law school began to get commitments. They, they knew from experience, going back to my decision that I wouldn't go to law school in 1972 when I was admitted by Harvard, they knew I kept my commitments. That's built into the Brooklyn uh, ethos. And uh, 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 he kept rolling forward the date that I was committed to stay. <laughs> and and, and uh, uh, so that was kind of the history. That, and that flowed over into the university trustees. And they, they kept rolling forward this, this date. And I, I had decided before Lisa died that 2012 would be the date. There'd be 10 years because I had this concept for developing a high school in Brooklyn that would be a free private school with volunteer teachers. And, you know, it's a, and I'd begun to build toward that uh, when Lisa died in 2007, because it takes a while to set up a school. I didn't realize I'd be doing it with Abu Dhabi but in Shanghai, but uh, you know, even a high school in Brooklyn, you have to plan and you begin to lay the foundry. Uh, so when Lisa died and I came up from being submerged in, in that, uh, as I described earlier, uh, they they they, uh, they asked me to commit to 2012, and I agreed. But then 2009 came, and they said we want you to stay longer. You, this Abu Dhabi process is beginning. The Shanghai process you could see on the horizon and we want you to see it through if we're going to do it and i said okay but i do have another i, I want to return to teaching i want to do certain nonprofit work outside of nyu uh and, and i also think it's it's not a good thing I, 14 years is about twice the tenure of even a successful presidency and and uh uh, it's got a biblical or sabbatical feel to it. Uh, so uh, it was in that context that I said, look, it's going to take us a while. Because what I began to do was focus on 2020. And and I would say there were 24 deans, for example. And I would say, could this person be a dean? Would it be healthy for this person to be a dean in 2020? And, and if not... We should. I want to hand my successor a group of people that will have two or three years under their belt, so that it's not a disgrace if my successor says, "Time for you to leave in the fourth year," but they have enough juice left that they. So, so I, the the first dean I spoke to about this was probably right around 2010 or so. And was a great dean. He was the dean of the college and a dear friend of mine. And I called him in and I said, uh, his name's Matthew Santoraco. And I said, Matthew, I said, uh, I'm going to ask you to step down as dean after next year. And Matthew is this wonderful person. He said, you know, John, I've been dean for, for 16 years. And I was hoping that I'd be the longest serving dean in the history of the college. And, and, I have to do three more years to do that. And I said, well, Matthew, that will just make it all the more beautiful that you're going to step down next year. And I said, nobody knows when you began. We'll tell them you served 20 years. 
You're the longest serving me. Nobody's no institutional memory. And I, and I said, and I want I want you to do this other. So that was the first. And when 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 Matthew did it, then by the time we handed over to Andy, he had people who after two or three years he began to replace, but he had others who could still keep going. And 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 uh, we did the same thing uh, uh, with the board with the chairman of the board. Marty stepped down a year before I did. Uh, and uh, uh, it was interesting. My provost, who had been my provost throughout, he and I agreed as part of this plan that he would stay a year beyond me so that there'd be a nice bridge to the transition. But there was never any question that he was going to stay beyond 15 years. Uh, and uh, it was interesting because there were some very talented young people that we were recruiting. Uh, the one I was hoping most for was the one that Andy picked, but, but, but there was a war, a, a nationwide search. And if he had had less security, if he had been less uh, the great man that he is, I'm talking about Andy, he would have said, I want to prove I'm my own guy and picked an outsider. But he picked this extraordinary woman, Catherine Fleming, who's been a terrific, absolutely terrific provost. So the team has more or less has stayed together and given continuity. And the notion of the global network is now, because Andy embraced it, it was part of the reason he came to NYU. Uh, and of course, his coming was tremendous ratification. And I'll, I'll give you that as the closing story. Uh, uh, there's a, an extraordinary man who's president of Columbia, Lee Bollinger. And Lee and I go back as friends, not just acquaintances, but as friends to 1980. Uh, he, uh, that was the year I began clerking for Warren Berger. He clerked for Warren Berger a few years before me, even though he's younger than me, because I was late when I went to law school. And uh, then we were law school deans. He was at Michigan. I'm at NYU. And then uh, he, he, uh, uh, went to Dartmouth as provost and then was president of the University of Michigan. And I actually wanted Lee to be my successor. Uh, I, 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 not, not my successor, to, to, to be the president of NYU when I became president. But uh, he was appointed to Columbia the same time I was appointed at NYU. And we were both already members of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And uh, the, the, uh, Academy asked us if the two of us would appear together uh, uh, at an Academy event and talk about, you know, NYU and Columbia. So I said, I did some research for this and uh, I, we agreed, of course, we, we love, we, we, you know, we have regular dinners. We talk, we laugh together to this day. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, Lee, of course, got up. It was right after the uh, affirmative action case when he had been president of Michigan and uh, he got up and he gave a beautiful speech on a commitment to diversity and so on, uh, using the affirmative action. And he's an elegant, articulate man and, and, and has a radio television voice, you know, and an accent. And, and I get up with this Brooklyn accent and uh, we're, we're in the room where almost exactly a hundred years before, not, not quite, but uh, maybe it was a hundred it was some numerical 125 years, but in that very room, the then president of uh, NYU, McCracken, who uh, people don't know this, but the first PhD in the United States was given at Yale. The second was given at NYU. And McCracken was a great 
figure, you know, in American education, along with the people at Hopkins and Harvard and uh, and, and Yale. He was a, a player, one of the founders of the AAU. Uh, in any case, McCracken got up and proposed the, that NYU would absorb Columbia, which was on hard times, and uh, uh, create what he called the Metropolitan University. And uh, uh, at the time, the president of Columbia was the man for whom the library up there, Lowe Library is named, Seth Lowe. And I look out at this group and I say, now just think about this. Here it was, NYU had this elegant, articulate intellectual. And Columbia had Seth Lowe, who was a shipbuilder from Brooklyn, who bought the Columbia presidency for a gift of a million dollars as as a springboard to become mayor of New York City. I, I said, look what's, what's happened. I said, you know, the two universities have changed roles. I said, and then I hit my, my punchline. I said, but before, before you members of the academy denigrate guys from Brooklyn, let me just tell you, Seth Lowe invented the paid sabbatical. The place jumped through that. Anyway, uh, Lee is still president, still doing a great job up there. So That's great. John, I know you need to go teach. Yeah. I just wanted to ask, how are you finding life post-presidency? It seems to be agreeing with you. Oh, I'm sinfully blessed. I, the university is very good to me, and uh, I, I teach essentially what and where I want. I love teaching. I teach more than most of my colleagues, and uh, and and. Uh, you know, I'm back in the law school, which I, I while I was president, I was I stayed away. But I, I walk into the building, and it's a building where 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 I'm loved. And and one of my heroes, Bob Beardall, who was the president of Texas and then of Berkeley, and then the head of the AAU, uh, he gave a talk at uh, at at. Uh, a, a, an event the university gave, gave to honor me when I stepped down. And he had a great line. It's probably been used many, many times, but it was the first time I heard it. He said, John, he said, I just want you to know that after your presence, uh, your colleagues are still going to wave to you as you walk through the park. The difference is now they'll use all their fingers. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I, the greetings I get from colleagues throughout the year, you know, I do my 10,000 steps every day. It's really, you know, and, and uh, I, 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 I don't have to, you know, I, I was trained that the suffering servant does good and you have to be willing to take pain, but I don't have to take pain ex officio, you know, for things for which I, I still get pain sometimes for things that are misunderstood that I did, but at least they're tethered to me, you know, and there's very, very little pain and an enormous amount of joy in my life. Uh, uh, there's a group of about 40 or 50 students that hangs around the president emeritus's office and, uh, uh, They've come into my life and want to stay in it for one reason or another. Uh, and they're there. And the senior members, a, a young man named Dino, 
who was my undergraduate student. Now he's graduated from the law school. He's got now an, uh, a tax fellowship down in the Justice Department uh, and uh, Treasury Department. Uh, but about uh, a year into the President Emeritus thing, Dino came to me because he was then a second year student at the law school. And he said, you know, I've been watching carefully because you taught us to notice. Um, is it possible to go directly from law school to be president emeritus? Or do you have to do something <laughs> in between? Because this is a pretty good Seems gig. Seems like a good gig. Yeah, 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 yeah. I said, you know, I never planned on it. I don't know. Maybe you could, you know. If you <laughs> Nobody notices. Anyway, David, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, John. This has been a real joy. Okay. I, See I really appreciate all the time. You've been See you thank on the quadrangle, my friend. Look forward to it. All right. Bye-bye.